Homosexuals around the nation are celebrating National Gay Pride this week. In Dallas, activities are sponsored by an organization called Circle of Friends. One of the club's members, Steve Johnson, called a news conference today and said the group is sponsoring a parade in downtown Dallas Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. He said the parade will include 17 vehicles and floats. According to Johnson, the parade is to be a demonstration of pride among the gay people of Dallas. That was the June 20th, 1972 news script from the WBAP-TV NBC station in Fort Worth, Texas. The report discussed the creation of Dallas's first Pride Parade on June 24th of 1972, on which, almost three years after the uprising at Stonewall Inn in New York City, 300 marchers and a crowd of 3,000 gathered downtown. The marchers made their way through the city alongside the floats, holding various signs, including those reading, I am one, and gay, as American as the flag and apple pie. Organized by the Circle of Friends, this event was one of the first major demonstrations by gay and queer people in the community. The Circle of Friends was created in 1965 by Phil Johnson and his friends, and was the first gay organization in Dallas. As we discussed in episode one, the organization created the first major community space for Dallas gay people outside the bar scene, holding meetings at the homes of members. While today the Circle of Friends may seem rather small and secretive, it was an important step in the way of forming the community. Not only in creating spaces to be gay in peace, but it also was a start for gay activism in the city. When analyzing the issues facing gay and queer people during this time, it becomes obvious why activist organization was necessary in Dallas. From a purely legal standpoint, being gay was effectively criminalized. From 1943 to 73, the sodomy law for the Texas State Penal Code was that of Title 10, Chapter 7, Article 524 which stated that whoever has carnal copulation of a beast or in an opening of the body, except sexual parts of another human being, or whoever shall use his mouth on the sexual parts of another human being for the purpose of having carnal copulation, shall be guilty of sodomy. This outlawed oral and anal sex for everyone, heterosexual or homosexual. However, in terms of execution of the law, it was almost always gay sex that was prosecuted. This law was changed in 1973 after Buchanan v. Batchelor on the basis that straight married couples deserve the right to privacy in their bedrooms. Article 524 was replaced with Section 2106, an arguably worse law for gay people in Texas, which is still technically in the books today. With Section 2106, it was explicitly gay sex that was criminalized. This new law also worsened discrimination outside the courtroom. Because Section 2106 made gay people's criminals by their nature, if outed, they face mistreatment in all aspects of life. Here's Dick Peoples, one of the founding members of the Dallas Gay Political Caucus, speaking with Dr. Wesley Phelps, a professor of history at the University of North Texas. Well, 2106, even though uh, the fine or the penalty under that was a monetary penalty of up to $200, it branded homosexuals as criminals. And that generates a whole litany of concerns. For example, there's a persuasive fear of arrest. Uh, you could be fired from your job because you were a criminal. I mean, again, the, the criminal was the, the core foundation on which all the discrimination rested. And um, so you could be fired from your job, not even offered employment in the first place, suffer discrimination in housing, um, you know, a criminal could not be a public school teacher, be a police officer, adopt a child, or be a foster parent. And, of course, if you were looking or had a job, 
that required a license, very often there was a question on there, do you adhere to all the laws of the state of Texas? Oop, 2106, what do you do about that? Mm. All of this and more was true in Dallas, where the city government cared little for gay people and the police went out of their way to catch gay people. While the next Pride Parade in Dallas didn't take place until 1980, well after the Circle of Friends fell from the forefront of queer activism, the community knew they had to come together to fight the discrimination at hand. From the University of North Texas in Denton, I'm Iris Anderson. This is Taylor Doherty. And this is Maddie Twiddell. And this is Out in Oaklawn, A Queer History of Dallas, a podcast about the largest gayborhood in Texas. In this episode, we will explore queer activism in the Oaklawn community throughout the 1970s to today. This is episode five, Acting Out. In 1975, Chance West founded the Dallas Gay Political Caucus, the first major gay political organization in the city. Here's West discussing the founding of the organization. The Dallas Gay Political Caucus came into being because a group of us living in Dallas at the time in 75 were experiencing what we felt was discrimination and we were getting some attacks from... uh, from the Dallas Police Chief and from other members of the Dallas City Council. We had a mayor that cared less about the gay community. And we were quite fed up. The DGPC was founded in order to fight the continued and growing anti-gay sentiment among the government and the populace inside and outside of Dallas to get people to register to vote and to foster the gay and lesbian community in the city. There were a number of motivators for the organization's formation and growth. Firstly, there were threats locally in Dallas, with discrimination from the city council and police, and mischaracterization from the press. Here's Chance West, Louise Young, and Don Baker, the first, third, and fourth presidents respectively of the Dallas Gay Political Caucus, in a 1996 interview conversation discussing this early police and press harassment. Well, it was an election year, and we had a police chief mm-hmm. that... Uh, was trying to make points for himself, particularly uh, with the city council and the mayor. And he said, oh, these gay bars, you know, they're, they're so secretive and all that other stuff. And uh, a reporter from the Herald came to visit me and said, uh, how do you respond to what the uh, Dallas police chief has said? And I said, the man's so full of hot air, it's ridiculous. And I said, we have no secrets. I said, uh, we have a weekly magazine that shows the location of all of our bars. I said, they're not secret. There's nothing illicit going on there. But uh, if he wants a battle like Stonewall, I guarantee him we could give it to him. You know. And that was the first time mm-hmm. my name was spread all over the mm-hmm. da- all over the <laughs> Dallas Times Herald on the front page, oh, wow. was yeah. that I had said that I would, we would mm-hmm. fight. Mm-hmm. the Dallas police, and, if um, necessary. I think your response to that whole encounter was one of the first major meetings yeah. that we had in the community, that you guys had called the community at MCC. at MCC. The MCC they're referring to is a Metropolitan Community Church in Dallas, which at the time was a young gay church operating out of a building that was once a small private hospital. The MCC is now known as the Cathedral of Hope and today is said to be the largest queer church in the world at over 4,000 members. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, that was my first meeting 
that yeah. I attended. Which which one? What what was one, the month and the year? That had to have been oh. in April or May, not in seventy six. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. There were statewide and national threats that likewise motivated them. In Texas, Section 2106, commonly referred to as the Homosexual Conduct Law, was adopted in 1973, which explicitly outlawed homosexual sex. But we'll get into the challenges to that a bit later. More immediate in 1977 was a threat that united gay organizations nationwide. Anita Bryant. Bryant was Miss Oklahoma in 1958 a popular pop musician to the 80s, and a vehement anti-gay rights activist. She ran her Save the Children campaign in order to repeal an ordinance in Dade County, Florida that prohibited discrimination based on sexual orientation. Across the country, gay activist organizations, including the Dallas Gay Political Caucus, retaliated. See, Bryant was a brand ambassador for the Florida Citrus Commission, so the activists rallied a national boycott of Florida orange juice, stating to the state that until this stops... They're losing business. Here's Young and West discussing the Anita Bryant situation. You know, I think that we really can't underestimate the Anita Bryant catalyst. Do you chance? I mean, uh... Oh, not at all. Uh, so many of us have grown up with her music. That's right. And, and we love those songs. Miss Oklahoma. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and then to have her turn on us so viciously. And, uh, I know I even put a a sign up on my mirror at the shop at work, you know, boycott Florida orange juice. <laughs> and, and it's the first time I can remember having somebody, uh, a uh, entertainment figure to focus on, to focus, you know, hatred at, you know, get even with her, get even with her. Well, I just, you know, this was the, absolutely the windfall of the, of the, the gay rights movement at that time. I mean, we oh, had, yeah. had Stonewall, and then we just had our, you know, various harassment issues in cities across the country, but this was a great unifier. Oh, yeah, this it was. Oh, the hundreds of letters, thousands of letters that were written to the state of Florida, oh, yeah. not just to the orange growers, but that went directly to uh, hit the state of Florida in the pocketbook and said, we're not going to drink Florida orange juice, and you're going to lose an industry if you don't shut her up. It was the first, I think it was the first national boycott that we had, and yeah. it was, like I said, it it made uh, the movement really a national movement. It was, you know, Anita yes. Bryant was the tie that bound. Yes. While Bryant was successful in repealing the ordinance, it still ended good for the DGPC in two ways. First, Bryant's reputation was permanently ruined, and she lost her ambassadorship three years later. And second, the attention rallied many to activism and made the Dallas Gay Political Caucus into a powerful force. Following this, activism in Oklahoma became centralized into two court cases, which each started in 1979, Baker v. Wade and the state of Texas v. Richard Schwiderski. In late 1977, Don Baker, who you heard speaking with Chance West and Louise Young earlier, was a fairly new elementary school teacher in the Dallas Independent School District. He was finally starting to come to terms with his homosexuality when the district superintendent announced that he was firing all gay teachers. He and a few other fearful DISD faculty got together with the DGPC to find support. As Baker, who soon became the president of DGPC, took on a public activist role, he was reached out to by Mike Anglin of the Texas Human Rights Foundation, an organization of attorneys with the goal of ridding Section 2106 from the state penal code, and he saw Baker as the perfect plaintiff. 
To recap, Section 2106 of the Texas State Penal Code reads, A person commits an offense if he engages in deviant sexual intercourse with another individual of the same sex. An offense under this section is a Class C misdemeanor. Baker was a perfect plaintiff for a case against the homosexual conduct law as he was an outspoken activist and a member of the gay community in Dallas, and he was directly harmed by the law without having been charged for anything. In November of 1979, Don and Mike filed the case, and the Dallas County District Attorney, Henry Wade, functioned as the defendant in the case, representing all district attorneys which upheld the homosexual conduct law. It took almost two years until hearing on the case by Judge Beckmeyer began, but during that time and into the beginning of the case, gay activists in Dallas rallied to bring attention to it. After over a year in court, Judge Buckmeyer issued his opinion in August of 1982. Here's Dick Peoples again. Judge Buckmeyer's opinion, uh, again issued August the 17th, 1982, held that 2106 was an unconstitutional violation of the fundamental right of privacy and of equal protection of the laws. As to the right of privacy, he stated, quote, the right to privacy does extend to private sexual conduct between consenting adults, whether husband and wife, unmarried males and females, or homosexuals, and the right of equal protection condemns a state law which, like 2106, prohibits homosexual sodomy, but not heterosexual sodomy, without any rational basis. It was a beautiful victory for gay people, not only in Oaklawn or Dallas, but across the state. However, the victory was squandered in 1985 when Danny Hill, a district attorney from Amarillo, appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court in a 9-7 on banc ruling that had Bachmeyer's decision overturned. Nonetheless, Baker v. Wade helped to rally gay people in Texas, fostering community within Oaklawn's DGPC and lighting a fire in the continued pursuit. You know, when we went to trial and, and uh, we uh, you know, were challenging that statute in court, I think that all of us were, not to uh, minimize uh, or trivialize it, were just overwhelmed when Judge Buckmeyer made this decision that, that this law should be ruled unconstitutional and that he indeed was a man of great sensitivity and, uh, you know, of great support for the community. And, and I think, you know, when we look at our history, we can never forget what Judge Buckmeyer what did. had done for us. Unfortunately, we didn't have the final outcome that we wanted with it, but it did, I think, help build the community we wanted. Yeah, it was a catalyst, very definitely. Meanwhile, in the early morning of October 25th of 1979, Village Station, the most popular queer nightclub in Oaklawn during the time, was raided by the Dallas police. Here's Don Mason, DGPC member and the lawyer behind the landmark case that would follow this raid, speaking to an organization called the Dallas Way in 2012. Homophobia among the Dallas Police Department was common, and the raid at the old village station on Cedar Springs Road was one of the many raids along the street during the 1970s. But it stood out in a number of arrests, in the number of arrests that were made, and the number of vice squad officers present. I think the entire vice squad was involved. They arrested 12 people who were doing a bunny hop on the dance floor and charge them with public lewdness. For years, the standard practice among gay people wrongfully arrested in a bar raid for public lewdness was the same. Take the guilty plea and do whatever you can to minimize the punishment you will get. But with the village station raid, people had enough, and some of the men arrested fought the charges. 
The village station raid became a turning point, not just for the Cedar Springs area, but for the whole gay community, because four of the 12 men arrested decided to fight the charges. That was unique. That was the first time. No one had ever stood up to the police before. Don Mason represented two of these four men who fought their cases. He initially defended his plaintiffs successfully to Judge Miller, who acquitted the men on the basis that the police lied and couldn't agree who filed the arrest report. But the prosecuting attorney, Henry Wade, who would later be the lead defendant of Baker v. Wade, could not accept this result and tried to refile the cases to a judge far more likely to convict the men. While Wade had to agree to a random reassignment, he got what he wanted and all of the men were found guilty. Following this, Mason was reached out to by Richard Schwederski, a flight attendant who too was arrested at the village station raid. After seeing Mason's success in getting his clients acquitted, Schwederski switched lawyers to Mason as his previous lawyer was suggesting him to plead guilty. In analyzing his arrest report, the language was so vague that it didn't make legal sense. But his case had an interesting twist to it because the complaint said that the defendant did there and then knowingly and intentionally allow the said other person to touch his genitals to arouse the sexual desire of any person or whatever. Which really, if you diagram that sentence, meant that I can be arrested if you sit there and touch your genitals. Despite the defense, Judge Orvis still found Richard Schwederski guilty of public lewdness. But Mason knew he still had a case and brought it to an appellate court to have the conviction overturned. My client was found guilty by the trial court, and that judge later told me, Don, you know I couldn't find a homosexual not guilty. And I just looked at him. And... Anyway, but I didn't care. I had error in the record. My client's case went up to the Court of Appeals, and this is really strange. Judge Joe Fish, a Republican appointee, wrote the opinion reversing and rendering the guilty finding and declaring my client not guilty. For the first time in Dallas, a gay person fought back against the police in court and won. Furthermore, following the increased communications between police and the gay community caused by Texas v. Schroederski, Don Mason and other gay lawyers in Dallas reached out to the Dallas Police Department to establish a liaison officer for the gay community. We got every gay lawyer in town to get involved in goals for Dallas, and we sat on these committees dealing with the cops and talking with them and beginning a dialogue and getting to know each other, basically. And we ended up with Sergeant Earl Newsom as our first liaison officer. He became very close with, well, all of us, really, and very involved in the community and did a great service in terms of educating the Dallas Police Department, getting the, the Resource Center involved in education programs there. This by no means ended the police harassment of queer people, but it served as an important step in the right direction of addressing the problem. Things had quickly changed, however, as following the advent of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, activists had a great new threat to the community's well-being and survival. A mystery disease known as the gay plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. That today from the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, topping the list of likely victims are male homosexuals who have many partners and drug users who inject themselves with needles. Medical experts say the disease kills four out of every ten people it strikes and that it threatens to explode in the nation's cities. On April 24, 1980, the CDC received its first report of someone with AIDS in the United States, Ken Horn. 
Ken Horn was diagnosed with Kaposi sarcoma, which is a rare but aggressive cancer associated with a weakened immune system. This kind of event was not a surprise for the CDC. In fact, it was pretty routine for them to see something of this nature, which is why they were called out. There were two other factors that raised eyebrows from what the CDC's experts. In both cases where the disease was present, it resulted in a fatality, and both victims were gay men. Some people in the CDC had theories about the disease, suggesting that it was transmittable and infectious, but those doctors were in the minority at the time. For the CDC, it would be standard procedure for them to determine who, what, where, and why the disease was spreading. This procedure would typically be enough to facilitate the construction of forces to understand the disease, its transmission, and what the target in order to mitigate the spread of infection. But what makes the 80 CDC different from the years prior is that the Reagan administration was in charge. By the time Reagan got the first report of AIDS in 1981, he had already decided on who he wanted to be the director of the CDC, and it was clear from the start that Dr. James Mason was unqualified as a director, and it was his connections with powerful members of the Reagan administration that got him appointed to begin with. The government had no understanding of its own role in preventing the disease, and for the next four years, the disease would affect a large swath of the population without public mention from the president. Reagan did not seem to take the crisis seriously until his friend Rock Hudson announced that he had AIDS in July of 1985. Only then did he make his first public mention of the disease on September 17th. Again, it took four years to get any acknowledgement from the president and only until it had personally affected him. Right now, Dallas has one of the most prolific social housing programs for people with AIDS, known as the AIDS Services of Dallas. The mission statement on their website reads, ASD creates, strengthens, and sustains healthy communities by providing quality, affordable, service-enriched housing to economically disadvantaged individuals and families who are living with, impacted by, or at risk for HIV-AIDS. The service can provide housing for a family for a week for just $350, but it wasn't always so successful. In fact, they had a very rocky beginning. By 1985, the AIDS crisis was hitting Dallas hard, and the Dallas County Health Department had recorded 125 cases and 123 deaths, and across the country, AIDS had been reported in over 51 counties. With discrimination on the rise, something needed to be done. From just a small community began something great. The People with AIDS Coalition of Dallas was formed by a longtime resident and Dallas native Phil Gray. With the knowledge that people were losing their jobs because of their AIDS status, Phil opened up a mail center named Oak Lawn Mail-In Message Service for the purpose of employing other people with AIDS. Unfortunately, the pain of living with AIDS was too hard on Phil and he took his own life, causing the project to collapse. But not for long, as two of the previous members of the PWA initiative would dedicate themselves to establishing projects that would keep the organization alive. They were Michael Merdian and Darlie Moore. Meridian and Moore were able to acquire two small houses loaned to them by Oaklawn Community Services to house a small group of people with AIDS. But after the OCLS lost their lease on the building, the previous tenants were at a serious risk of homelessness once again. But Meridian and Moore were able to continue providing their service with the help of Oak Cliff real estate investor Evelyn Petty, who held a property for them to purchase, a three-story apartment building in North Oak Cliff that Meridian and Moore named A Place for Us, now known as the Ewing House. The tenants from the OLCS were promptly moved into their new home. Now, you might be asking, how are Meridian and Moore able to afford this place? Unbeknownst to the two, the PWA had caught the eye of an AIDS patient by the name of Patrick Devonport, who was left with a big inheritance after his oil-rich grandmother passed away. Devonport would begin writing checks to Meridian in the amounts of $10,000, $15,000, $50,000, and $100,000, totaling up to $175,000 or about $575,000 today. Devonport's investment was the primary funding for the purchase of the Ewing House. 
Mr. Devonport had actually promised another 100000 but the payment was never finalized because before Meridian knew it, Devonport was already asking for about $50,000 back because he had legal fees to pay. Even worse, all of the money that was already donated to Mr. Devonport was obtained illegally and embezzled from his previous job as a branch manager for the First Texas Savings Association. Mr. Devonport's attorney said that Devonport panicked when he was diagnosed with AIDS and began embezzling the funds after that. Devonport was met with nothing but support and sympathy from people affected by AIDS, many referring to him as Robin Hood and even suggesting that they completely understood why he would do something so impactful if he believed he did not have much time to live. By the time the AIDS Center found all of the money was stolen, $125,000 were already spent and the work was already in progress, with workers expecting payment. Don Mason, the center's attorney, said the facility had acted in accordance with the law by accepting and spending money they believed to be legitimate donations, as the law only specifies that spending money that you know is stolen is theft. But in the end, Murdy and Moore would pay back the stolen money in incremental payments. These three people are the original AIDS activists of Dallas. Michael Murdian and Darlene Moore stepped up in the name of their dear friend, Phil, to make sure that no one had to suffer the same fate as him and that people with AIDS had someone to fight and raise money for them as those affected by AIDS were pushed to the margins by general society. As for Devonport, he is the epitome of an activist. He knew that what he was doing was illegal, but he was willing to do it because the money he was stealing was going towards a good cause, and he wasn't wrong. That money was used to house generations of families and people affected by AIDS. Moreover, the story was published in the New York Times. Mr. Devonport was able to bring national attention to the issue, even if it was embezzling the money. Any publicity is good publicity. Devonport's situation has highlighted how hopeless the situation was for people with AIDS. He figured that the diagnosis meant he would not live for much longer. So why not sacrifice some of his freedom in the hope that someone else can live a bit longer? Bobby Krause can tell you all about AIDS care at Parkland. Last week, I jokingly suggested that they do a study of the lifespan of AIDS patients at Parkland and the lifespan of AIDS patients elsewhere. I think you'd find a difference, a big difference. The biggest difference for Bobby is this inhalant, pentamidine mist. Parkland has not made it available even though it appears to prevent pneumocystic pneumonia. That's the number one killer of AIDS patients. Problem is FDA has not approved the mist form. It's not illegal to prescribe it anyway, but it would violate hospital rules. On March 17, 1988, the Dallas Gay Alliance, formerly the DGPC, sent a letter to Dr. Anderson, the administrator at Parkland Memorial Hospital, demanding massive changes to their procedure for AIDS patients. The list of demands were as follows. First, they demanded there be no limits on who is eligible to receive azidothymidine, or AZT the first AIDS medication approved by the FDA because the full cost of AZT was being paid for through Medicaid programs, there was no reason why all AIDS patients should not have access to the treatment. Second, they demanded that Parkland utilize aerosolized version, which cost half as much but was not FDA approved. Third, the DGA demanded that Parkland stop limiting the amount of beds they had available for HIV patients. This was only revealed when the DGA noticed some patients were being admitted immediately, while others were made to wait for treatment. This was a deliberate attempt by the hospital to avoid having to deal with the increased caseloads of AIDS patients in the area. Fourth, they demanded that Parkland Hospital give up counseling on HIV tests and that all HIV testing without consent would cease. Last but not least, the DGA demanded that the AIDS clinic must increase staffing in order to meet all of the demands of the DGA, claiming that two-thirds of the problems they have with Parkland are associated with their lack of medical staff. The demands from the Dallas Gay Alliance were not met by Parkland, and the DGA would move forward with a lawsuit against Parkland filed on May 19, 1988. The plaintiffs include the Dallas Gay Alliance, Ronald Woodruff, founder of the Dallas Buyers Club, which distributed medications unapproved by the FDA to people with AIDS for a cheap price, Benjamin Wakefield, Irvin Riddle, and Bill Seals. 
Unlike many cases, the Dallas Gay Alliance had the decision in just two months. On June 5, 1988, Judge John Marshall handed down a very strong and powerful decision in favor of the Dallas Gay Alliance. I won't read the entire thing, but I want to highlight a specific paragraph. This case presents the paradigm of AIDS cases that we will undoubtedly see in the future if a cure should not be found. That is, an AIDS victim as the disease progresses will descend the economic ladder into indigency so that at the moment of the greatest need, the victim has the fewest resources to meet it. To whom must the victim turn? Obviously, the public must intervene or else adopt a policy that says, let them die because we can't afford them. Such a result is not tolerable in a society that for over the last 200 years has prided itself on placing human values first. John continues, this court is not a physician, nor is it a hospital administrator, but it must be some extent a voice of the conscience of the community. That voice, even when confronted with the moral background of the AIDS phenomenon, must be and is raised in favor of life. A very brave and smart decision from John Marshall, especially in the face of a majority that was not in favor of helping AIDS patients because it was related to their sexuality. John Marshall was able to separate his own moral beliefs in favor of preserving life. This is the kind of decision we always hope to hear as activists fighting for the rights of others. We could do an entire episode dedicated to the Parkland case, but for the sake of time, I just want to focus on two of the activists or plaintiffs that made challenges to the legal system possible by sacrificing their time and energy to try and help others, Irvin Riddle and Ron Woodruff. Their grounds for this suit were the same as the demands, but the affidavit from Irvin Riddle is where things get even more disturbing. In August of 1986, Irvin was admitted to Parkland as a patient with AIDS because he had tested positive on a non-consensual test. When he arrived, he was given Bactrim, a common antibiotic that contains sulfa, which Irvin was allergic to, and the hospital knew it because it was on his file. This put Irvin into a near-fatal coma. In January of 1988, Irvin arrived at Parkland sick and was immediately sent to the AIDS ward where he waited 12 hours for a bed because Parkland had only a certain number of beds reserved for AIDS patients. The beds did not become available until someone leaves or dies while there. Lastly, Parkland refused to treat Irvin with pentamidine mist and refused to help him obtain it. Parkland did not have any problem with the treatments as they referred Irvin Riddle to the Dallas Gay Alliance multiple times to get it, but refused to administer it themselves. Coming out against the biggest hospital in your area about improper treatment of AIDS patients is no small feat. It is brave and something that not everyone has the courage to do. People like Irvin, someone who stood up for others in the face of injustice, are integral to seeing tangible change in legal systems because it is their stories that give others the powers to move forward. On the other hand, Ron Woodruff was diagnosed with AIDS in the mid-80s and was told by doctors he only had a few years to live. For Woodruff, AIDS hit him hard. It attacked his nervous system first, leading him to have an early-onset AIDS-related dementia. Woodruff was prescribed AZT. Not to sound like a TV commercial, but the list of side effects for AZT is extensive. Nausea, vomiting, headaches, diarrhea, and insomnia. Not only did AZT give Ron these side effects, but it was ineffective in combating the effects of AIDS as well. Soon, Ron would start looking at alternative medicines for AIDS. And no, I'm not talking about spirituality or rocks. Ron started buying drugs unapproved by the FDA from overseas that lessened his symptoms and prolonged his life. But they were expensive, and the FDA did not allow for people to order more than the three-month supply at a time. Woodruff would take it upon himself to help others affected by AIDS by teaming up with others, including doctors and other chemists in the United States, to smuggle in non-approved drugs. To smuggle in these drugs, Ron would dress as a priest or a doctor to cross the U.S.-Mexico border to lessen the likelihood of his car getting randomly searched. The drugs were tested at labs to make sure the mix of chemicals was correct and potent, and in just a few years, the group would be importing over 100 different drugs and treatments for AIDS that they could distribute to everyone. This ring of people would begin to call themselves the Dallas Buyers Club. Ron Woodruff is just another example of an activist who is willing to break the law and risk his own freedom to help others in the hope that their experience with AIDS won't be the same as his own. 
These activists set the foundation for activism and prove just how effective a small but dedicated community can be when it comes to caring for each other. And more specifically, why we the people should not and cannot always rely on the government alone to protect us. But activism in Oakland doesn't stop with the AIDS epidemic. Even today, people in Oakland are fighting for the rights of queer people. On May 12, 2023, the Resource Center of Dallas, a nonprofit, broke ground and began construction for Oakland Place, a safe home for LGBTQ seniors facing housing struggles. Housing struggles have been a major issue for the people of Oakland since the early 2010s, and as the city has blossomed, so has the increased demand for urban living. The coalition did a survey about two years ago, and at the time it was housing was the most critical. Mm -hmm. People who are on limited income have very few choices on where to live safely. This is Betty King, the chair of social engagement for the Coalition of Aging, speaking on a survey given to LGBTQ seniors back in 2017. To combat this housing crisis, the Resource Center has put into motion the plan of an 84 housing unit facility geared towards helping LGBTQ seniors in the area. The total cost came out to be $31 million, and the funding came from the Resource Center, raising $4 million, a grant from the Federal Home Loan Bank of Dallas, federal funds from President Joe Biden's American Rescue Plan granted through Dallas County, and other donations and government funding. Although this housing center was originally projected to be completed in 2020, they were $5 million short as the pandemic had a significant impact on material costs and labor availability. The complex is now projected to open in 2024, which is exactly 50 years after the Stonewall uprising took place. The people who experienced this event are a part of the Stonewall generation, and by now they will be in their mid-70s and will have a resource dedicated to becoming a support network for them. The idea behind Oakland Place is hope, perseverance, and love. Beyond Oakland Place, the Resource Center has been an invaluable part of the development of the queer community of Dallas, but it hasn't always been as developed as it is today. King talks about how back in the late 70s, the Resource Center was just getting its foundation built. We would have uh, different events, like I said, a, a garage sale or car wash or something and um, to help fund what we were doing. We incorporated and we moved to a commercial building mm. and um, had an open house where we had invited a lot of the counseling groups and um, attorneys and all these other resources that we had developed over the years mm. and opened there. So uh, at that point, of course, the, the phone was there, but we could still send it to people's homes, mm. call forwarding. That was new. <laughs> um, we had a library there certainly um, events that we were having and an outreach group and it's not like the uh, the center now uh, with their different events mm -hmm. coming up monthly and things like that I don't think we were that developed but we did have some basic things since then, the Resource Center has developed into a crucial part of the LGBTQ community in Dallas. The three pillars of empowerment are to provide positive social engagement in safe places, supportive services to promote wellness, and skill-building opportunities to promote growth. They have created and hosted many small groups for the LGBTQ community. An example of one of these is Gender Brave, where transgender and gender nonconforming individuals between the ages of 18 to 35 can meet, socialize, learn life skills, and provide an overall support system to everyone in the group. There is a small group option for everyone, and the meetings are public and open to anyone who wants to drop in, or you can contact the community liaison to help get place into the right group for you. 
Beyond Small Group's Resource Center has provided countless health services like HIV testing, primary care, mental health care, gender-affirming care, and many more. Betty King was a huge activist with her involvement in the building and development of the Resource Center back in the 70s, but what does modern-day activism look like in the 21st century? The Resource Center has had countless leaders since its development, and one of these leaders was C.C. Cox. Cox has been the CEO of Resource Center since July of 2010 and has always been an influential activist of the queer community of Dallas. She has spoken at multiple events and has used her platform to advocate for those who might otherwise struggle to have their voices heard. I'm C.C. Cox. I'm an attorney. I'm a lesbian. I'm a mom, and I'm the CEO of Resource Center, which is one of the largest direct service providers in the United States serving the LGBTQIA community. We're located in Dallas, and we have programs and services centered around health and wellness, which includes mental health, as well as primary medical care, families and communities, and education and advocacy. We served more than 60,000 people last year, and that included 500-plus youth. My time with you today is of more of a personal nature. This is C.C. Cox speaking before Representative Raphael Anquia about some of the issues that the transgender youth are facing in today's world. Um, the majority of the youth that we serve that identify uh, within our youth group identify as transgender or gender nonconforming. And they have been carrying a lot, as many other speakers have addressed today, in terms not on a regular basis in addition to going through COVID. And we have had to take our programming to online. Well, not everyone has access to get to participate online. It's great for some, but it doesn't work for everybody. You might, may not have a safe place in your home. So youth are facing isolation. They're facing mental health challenges. They're not all safe and welcome in their own home. And as many other speakers have articulated, they are also not safe and welcome, many of them, in their own schools or their places of worship. So to add the type of burden that this law is contemplating onto them and the messages that it is sending is adding an additional stress onto these youth that we should be thinking of every possible way we can love and support. When messages are continuously and consistently put out that those lives are not as valuable or not as valued, and those people are not to be seen as others are, that leads to behavior, it leads to consequences, it leads to crime, it leads to violence. That's been shown year after year, decade after decade. We teach our children to do the right thing. We know that words matter. What we say to them matters. It's the same thing throughout society, and you continually message these types of things that trans people are not to be valued as others, and in this type of bill to actually be segregated out until they can't do the things that we encourage other children to do, it, it, it leaves no other choice other than to leave them feeling ostracized, to need mental health services, and to lead to the types of consequences that we've heard about over and over again today. Cece Cox uses her platform and her voice as a proud activist for all of the LGBTQ community. She has also spoken on Volume 12 of Outrageous Oral, which is a YouTube series of speakers hosting events in the famous Ruby Room. She shared how she reached out to the Texas Alcohol and Beverage Commission to provide some cultural competency training for the LGBTQ community. So I worked at Resource Center at that time, and we do a lot of education and advocacy. So we reached out to the Texas Alcohol and Beverage Commission, which was the statewide agency that was involved in the bar raid and asked them if they would be interested 
that they might just need some cultural competency training as to the LGBT community. They kind of thought that was a good idea. So we engaged in a contract with them, and maybe there's a pattern here in my life. We ended up going to nine cities across Texas, including Waco, Amarillo, Grand Prairie, El Paso, Corpus Christi, Houston, Mesquite, Midland, Austin, and San Antonio. Some more enlightened places than others. But to their credit, the commissioner, Alan Steen, mandated that every single employee of TABC would be trained. And we trained every single employee of TABC, whether they worked in the office and kept timesheets or whether they were inspectors in the field. So there were some times that were pretty tense. But what really happened, what I, my real takeaway was that in every single one of those trainings, we had real conversations with people. We want to be seen as real people with real lives and real families. That's what everybody wants. And so for every anxious person leaning back in their chair with their arms crossed, there was someone who had a gay son or a gay daughter or a gay cousin or a lesbian aunt or, you know, and they wanted to learn and they asked questions. And I knew that at the end of that, we had made an impact. And because we had had real conversations, we looked people in the eye and we carried on to try to help a horrible situation come up with something better than that. Cece Cox is a loud voice and she is able to use her platform to reach many people. But there are many other voices that although may not be heard by as many people, who still do what they can to educate and inform the public. One of these voices is Brandon Murray, who is a librarian and certified archivist with the Dallas History and Archives Division. Brandon has written many articles and made YouTube videos explaining some of the history of Oakland to the public. Today we're going to talk about Oakland and the history of Oakland. Um, Oakland has a long history in Dallas as a neighborhood known for its groundbreaking diversity and vibrant growing community. This is the beginning of a YouTube video that Brandon made educating the public on the history of Texas and the history of Oakland. In 1972, the first gay pride parade in Texas was held in downtown. And on June 29, 1973, markers went down Main Street holding signs, protesting bias in hiring and housing at Dallas's second annual Gay Freedom Parade. Among the signage, gay rights are human rights. We demand the rights to, to live free of fear and we demand an end to employment discrimination against gays. The march was held on the anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, also known as the Stonewall Uprising or the Stonewall Rebellion, when members of the LGBTQ community at an otherwise little known bar in Greenwich Village in Manhattan stood up to police during a raid. The word riot was attached to the incident since it marked the first open resistance by the LGBTQ community to police harassment and has inspired, inspired social justice awareness and action to this day. Beyond making educational YouTube videos, Brandon has written many articles for the Dallas Magazine with the purpose of educating the public on the history of Dallas. These articles come in a series called Tailed from the Dallas History Archives, and some of their titles include Honoring Native American Heritage Month, when royalty came to Texas, and traveled back in time to 1923. Activism is more than what you accomplish, but it is about taking the special voice you've been given and using your unique talents to stand up for the things that you believe in and share your perspective with the rest of the world. For Betty King, activism meant being a chairman of a coalition and helping develop the groundwork of the current day resource center. For CeCe Cox, it means using her position as CEO of the resource center to speak out and be the voice for other people. For Brandon Murray, it is using his resources as an archivist to help educate the public on topics he believes are important. 
For Ron Woodruff and Patrick Devonport, it means providing money and resources to support the queer community, even if they must break the law to do so. For Don Mason, the Dallas Gay and Lesbian Alliance, it means fighting injustice in court to strike down unfair laws. You are also given a voice and unique experiences, so how are you going to use it to be an activist in your own life? Out in Oaklawn is an undergraduate student-led project funded by the Department of History at the University of North Texas. This episode was researched and produced by Iris Anderson, Taylor Doherty, and Maddie Twiddell. Special thanks to our professor Wesley Phelps, the UNT Library Special Collections Department, the Dallas Way, the Portal to Texas History, and the community members of Oaklawn. Thanks also to Dick Peoples, Chance West, Louise Young, Don Baker, Don Mason, Betty King, Cece Cox, and Brandon Murray for their insights into LGBTQ activism in Oaklawn. Our theme music was composed by Alexi Action. Additional music in this episode was composed by Victor Petrov. You can find more episodes and research notes at our website, outinoaklawn.podbean.com. <laughs>